We're going to read together today from our passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And so let's read that together. It's on page 676, or 976, and the Bible's there provided for you if you would like to follow along. Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say to us through the church at Ephesus. Here's what he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the coming ages, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, if you've been coming to Christ Community Church for any length of time, you'll know that we have been in the book of Ecclesiastes for the fall, right? That we have been studying that book from the Old Testament, Solomon's Wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I love that sermon series. It's been a great one. So, but today we're throwing you a little bit of a curveball, just like in last night's baseball game, right? Go Astros. Today we're going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. Because tomorrow is kind of a big day, isn't it? Right? Now, I know as I say that, most of you are probably thinking about maybe carving pumpkins tonight, setting out the kids' costumes that they might wear to school tomorrow for Halloween or trick-or-treating tomorrow afternoon. A lot of the kids might be thinking, yeah, it's the day we get our fall supply of candy. But that's not the day that I'm referring to. So I'm going to throw you another curveball. Tomorrow, we celebrate Reformation Day. Reformation Day. Now, maybe you haven't heard of Reformation Day. Maybe you aren't aware of Reformation Day and what it is. But on October 31st, 1517, 505 years ago tomorrow, a German monk and a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg nailed to the door of the castle church there in Wittenberg a document that has become known as his 95 Theses. Now, the full name is, is a little bit more boring. It's the 95 Theses on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, but it has been shortened significantly to just the, the name, the 95 Theses. And in doing this, this German monk sparked a reformation. He lit the match to a reformation that would set the world ablaze, and which we are still a part of 
505 years later. Now, when Luther nailed his document to the church door, he had no idea on that day that it would result in a reformation. For Luther, his act of nailing these 95 uh, statements, these theses, these, these propositions to the door of the, of the church was merely for him another day at the office. You see, that's what professors did, all right? Back in the day, they actually liked to debate ideas. And so it was common practice when you had something you wanted to debate in public, you would write them down, what your points were, you would walk to the church door, which was the place of public gathering, and you would nail it to the door and let everybody know, here is my position, let anybody who wants to come and debate me on it. Come and talk to me about it. Let's have a conversation. And that's what Luther was attempting to do that day. He was not attempting to create some scandal within the church. He was not attempting to bring down the church in any significant way. He was attempting to have a public discussion about an important topic of his day. As a matter of fact, a month before he, he nailed up his 95 theses to the church door, he had actually nailed up what were called the 97 Theses, to the same church door, but no one noticed. No one cared. And quite frankly, the, the 97 Theses, if you go and look at the 97 Theses today, you'll probably figure out pretty quickly that those were way more controversial than what he was going to raise in his 95 Theses just a month later. But no one took notice of Luther's 97 Theses, but everyone took notice of his 95 theses. And the question we should ask ourselves is why? Why did this act by this German monk cause such a stir? What was going on? Now, the reason, quite frankly, is relatively simple. The reason why Luther's 95 theses caused such a stir when his much deeper and much more controversial earlier document had gone nowhere is simple. Power and money. You see, behind the scenes, what's to set the stage for Luther's 95 Theses, you have to understand kind of the church culture of Luther's day. And we'll start with a gentleman by the name of Albert. You see, Albert was a young man, but he was the second son of a wealthy and powerful German prince. Now, when people come to me in my day practice, in my practice of law, and they want to do a will for their children. In our day and age, it's pretty common practice for people to come in and say, you know what, I've got three, four kids. I want all of them to get a share of my estate equally. All right, I want each one to get a third or a fourth, but I want them to get it equally, right? Well, that's not the case with royalty, is it? That's not typically the case with a royal family, a family who has titles and land that they want to pass from one generation to the next generation. All of that goes to who? The firstborn son, right? And the secondborn son really gets nothing, maybe a small consolation prize. Well, Albert's small consolation prize was to go to seminary. His parents decided, look, you're not going to inherit our kingdom, so we're going to send you to church 
We're going to send you to school where you're going to study to become a priest. And maybe, Albert, if you do well in school, we will help you obtain a high office within the church. And that's exactly what happened. Albert, you know, did well in school. And so at age 23, because his parents were wealthy and powerful, he was given by the church the archbishopric of Magdeburg, one of the large archbishoprics. If you're not familiar with that term, it's essentially he was over 30, 40, 50 churches in the German county of Magdeburg at age 23. And so there is Albert, who is this powerful individual now, who's basically ruling this county of Magdeburg like his own little kingdom. And he thinks to himself, he's an ambitious man, and he thinks to himself, he says, you know what's better than one archbishopric? He thinks two archbishoprics are better than one. Now, unfortunately, this was against church law to be the archbishop of two independent archbishoprics. So, for the tidy sum of 24,000 ducats donated to the Catholic Church, he gets by this law and is allowed to purchase, purchase the archbishopric of Mainz next door, a powerful, large, large county. And so now, this second son of a German prince is one of the most powerful men in all of Europe, a prince in his own right, lord over Magdeburg and Mainz. But he's got a problem now, because in order to pay this 24,000 ducats to the church, he had to take a large loan from a gentleman by the name of Jacob Fugger. And Jacob Fugger was the richest man in all of Europe, and he loaned this money to Albert, and Albert has to pay it back. So he's a powerful man, but he's also a very much indebted man. And as he's thinking of ways to pay this money back, he, has, he finds a useful ally in Pope Leo X, who is the pope in his day. And Pope Leo X also has a problem. Not only is he a big spender who is also indebted to bankers, but he has been saddled with an obligation to build a new cathedral in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica. And you'll probably, you can see pictures of St. Peter's up here on the screen. You know it as the church where the Pope is even today, this grand facility, this impressive structure that would cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of ducats in that day to build. And so both Leo X and Albert needed money. And so in their attempt to get money, they decided that what they would do to raise money would be to sell indulgences in Germany. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, what an indulgence is, you're probably not alone. But an indulgence is essentially this the purchase of forgiveness of sins from the church. You pay a sum of money, and what you receive back is a certificate that says your sins have been atoned for. Your sins have been paid for. To do this, Albert and Pope Leo decided to hire the services of a gentleman by the name of Johann Tetzel. 
and Tetzel would go around the countryside, and he had a, a really nice little scheme going on here. What he would do is he hired a group of, of priests to go before him into each city. And as they would arrive in each city, they would come in with this big procession, bring in their relics with them, their banners, and they would preach sermons all day on the problem you have with your sin. And, the, and that if you die with this sin on your record, even if you're a Christian, you may have to spend years, perhaps decades or centuries or even perhaps millennia in purgatory. This place of temporal punishment where you would work off the debt of your sins through punishment for who knows how long. And after this group of, of preachers would come in and preach about your problem of sin, in walks Tetzel the day after, ready to sell you an indulgence from the church. As a matter of fact, one of the catchy phrases that was uttered around this time was the phrase, for every coin in the coffer sings, a soul from purgatory springs, Right? Reminds me of the time when my wife and I were in Charleston, and we had a problem. We were young and married, and we didn't have any money, and that was our problem. And there was a guy who was standing at the, uh, at the resort where we were staying, and he said, you know what, you can, I can give you a $200 voucher to any restaurant here in town if all you do is show up at this, at this timeshare presentation tomorrow. And, of course, <laughs> we had a problem. We didn't have $200 to spend on dinner, so that would sound like a great idea. And the next day at that timeshare presentation, these two, this couple who didn't have $200 to spend on dinner was contemplating paying $50,000 for this nice timeshare. By the grace of God, we were delivered. We didn't, we didn't buy it. We didn't buy it. But that's the kind of thing that was going on all throughout Germany as Johann Tetzel would go from town to town selling these certificates, and Luther was furious about it. It should be obvious the corruption involved here, right, to us, the abuse that can, that can arise from this, but Luther, in taking his stand, the reason why his 95 theses caused such a stir was because he was challenging the money and the power. But what was he objecting to, really? What was his problem? What's the basis for his argument against this practice? That's our first point for today. The first point is that the grace of God is never purchased, it is never earned by us. You see, at the heart of this practice of indulgence is this. You take your hard-earned money that you have made from your day, your week, your month, your year, your lifetime of labor, and you pay it over, and in return, you get a dispensation of the grace of God. 
Now, there was a whole theological system built up around this. This is not something that was easy for people to see through or easy for people to understand. Okay, the, the Catholic Church had this idea in their theology of what they called the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit. And what they taught, what was taught in this treasury of merit, was that all of the saints, these holy people, these people who had spent their lives in prayer and supplication to God in good works, had built up for them this treasury of merit, of good works, that God looked at and said, those are good works. And there was this great treasury of merit that was available at the church's disposal to dispense as the church saw fit. And so as you, the, the individual sinner out there who was not a saint, maybe a believer, but you were not a saint, as you went about your lives and you sinned, well, rather than coming to the priest and making confession and then go doing penance of your own, why not just pay a little sum of money and receive from the church, out of its treasury of merit, this dispensation of grace, right? And so there was a whole theological system built up around this practice, but it is a theological system based on straw. As we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we all share a common problem. We all share a common condition. And here it is. Paul says it this way, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want you to notice in what Paul is saying there, the universal nature of this statement. You see, he's not talking about people out there and saying there's these really bad people out there who are under the control of the evil one. He's saying this is us. This is all of us. And how terrifying of a thought is that? We're, we're approaching Halloween tomorrow, a, a day when we're kind of used to scares. But how scary is the reality of what Paul says here? That all of us, we're at one point under the sway of Satan himself. How terrifying is that, really? You see, as human beings, one of the things we love to do is we love to assess ourselves and how we are horizontally. We love to look out on the world as we see it, and we love to look at other people and say, you know what, I'm not as bad as them. I'm not as bad as them. And we don't like to look up, to look vertically at the standard of God and assess ourselves really and say, I, I am just as bad as everyone else. I fall, I fall short of the glory of God. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what Paul does here is he says, we are all in the same boat we have earned nothing. And that's why he says elsewhere in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Nothing. You get nothing. 
you get death. You deserve to have everything taken away. Not to get more. You've earned nothing. You have nothing to give. You know, I'm not a big proponent of new Bible translations. I'm not. But maybe we can take up a collection here, or maybe we can even sell indulgences. I don't know. And have a new Bible edition printed where the second half of Romans 6.23 starts with a capital B-U-T. But that way pastors like me and preachers like me can get up here and say without any apology, I like big, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say it, it's a fifth Sunday, you know. But this is the most important but in all the Bible. It's huge. But God, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You see, point two is this. The grace of God is always the free gift of God. The grace of God is always the free gift of God. It can't be earned. Can't be purchased. Can't be manipulated from him by some act that you do. It is always the free gift of him. It depends on him, never on us. And so that's why when we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, we have another huge, important Big but. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we had earned nothing, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. You see, God's grace is always a demonstration not of our riches, not of what we have earned, but it is always a demonstration of his riches, of his riches. You see, think of Albert of Mainz how wealthy and powerful he was. Think of Pope Leo X, who was building this grand cathedral. Think of Jacob Fugger, who, who some estimates say his net worth was up to 2% of all of the net worth of Europe in his day. He was incredibly wealthy. To, to put that into perspective, the, the net worth of our country right now here is probably something like $280 trillion. And so somebody who would be worth 2% of our net worth here in this country would probably be worth somewhere in the realm of $5 trillion of their own accord. That's wealth. He may have been more wealthy than any individual on, who has ever lived. And yet all of this wealth, all of this power, is accounted as nothing 
when compared to the immeasurable, the infinite wealth of Almighty God. And grace is always God's presentation of His wealth, of the riches of His grace. And that's point three. The rich, infinite, unending grace of God is the foundation of all our hope. It is the only foundation upon which we can rest. I love the old hymns. The old hymns that say things like this, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Or that good Baptist benediction that we used to sing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures, here below. See, they understood this profound necessity of grace upon which everything rests. Our hope in this life is held up on the foundation of grace, of the grace of God. And that's why Paul, for the second time in this passage, says it again. He says this in verses 8 through 10. For by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. For by grace we have been saved through faith. Through faith. And this is not our own doing, he says. This is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, throughout church history, there has been a legitimate controversy here with respect to this passage that I want to address. And the controversy that has come up in this passage in particular, is whether, as he says this, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, the question that has come up is whether that word this, whether that, that simple word this refers to the question of grace in the previous passage or whether it refers to faith. What is not our own? Is Paul really saying here that our faith is not our own? What, what, what is he getting at? What is he saying? Or is he talking about grace? And one of the reasons why this has been a legitimate, there are two reasons why this has been a legitimate concern, legitimate uh, uh, dispute in, in the church about this, is because the Greek structure of that, that, that uh, uh, term this has a different gender than either grace in the previous passage or faith. And that's unique in Greek. Usually, when you're referring to another word, you, you match the gender of the, of the words together. Okay? And so, the question has arisen, well, what is he referring to? Is he saying that our faith is not our own? That, that also is a gift. And another reason why this has become a controversy is because in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul 
makes a really hard distinction in Romans chapter 4 between salvation by works and salvation by faith. And if you know your Paul, you'll know that he comes down completely and 100% that salvation is by faith alone, not by works. And so we have a controversy here is what is Paul talking about when he comes to this passage? He says, what is, you know, this is not your own. This is not your own. What is he referring to exactly? Now, I think that there is a clue here in the way he structures the next verse, in verse 9, where he says, for by grace you have been saved, this is verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And then he says this, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He says it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I think that gives us a clue. As I mentioned, in, in Romans chapter 4, we have this hard distinction in Romans of Paul saying, hey, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by works. He even says the same thing, so that no one may boast, we're saved only by faith. And what he seems to be doing, in many ways, is drawing this hard contrast between faith and works, so that some have been led to the conclusion that faith itself cannot be a work, so that we're not saved by any works, because we don't want to say we're saved by a work, okay? Unfortunately, we have a problem, is that Jesus seems to say otherwise. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000. And the next day, he escapes from this crowd by sailing a boat across the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd follows him, and they come around the lake, and they meet him on the other side. And as they meet with Jesus in John chapter 6, what the crowd wants is for them to feed him again, them again. And so they begin pressing Jesus to do more signs, to do more miracles, to give them more food. And there you see this interesting exchange in John chapter 6 between Jesus and these individuals. In John chapter 6, 28, the crowd says to Jesus this. They say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, the reason why they're asking this question is because they want Jesus to do something for them. And so they're asking the question, what should we do for you so that you will do something for us. How can we get you to give us something we want? And Jesus responds to them and he says this way. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. You see, this creates a little bit of a problem for our position that faith is not in any sense a work, does it? Because what's Jesus said to say? He's saying, if you want to do the works of God, have faith in me. Have faith in me. So we have to ask ourselves our question, is Jesus saying that faith is not a work? Or is Paul saying that faith is not a work? He's not. When he talks about salvation by works, what do you have to do to be saved by your works? You have to be perfect. You have to do all the works of the law. If you want to be saved by works, you can't sin once. If you want to be saved by works, if you want to claim that your salvation is by works, that you're righteous, really, you better show a perfect scorecard. 
No one is saved by works. But what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2 is we're all saved through one work. Not that this work earns us anything. It doesn't earn us anything. But we must do something. And that's what a work is. It's doing something. And what is it that we must do? We must have faith. And the way to square these two ideas is wrapped up in what Paul says in verse 10. See, in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, what we must do is believe. And the only way we can believe is if we are God's workmanship. So that's why Paul says the whole thing is the grace of God. The whole thing is a gift. Your salvation is a gift. Your salvation that you access by faith is a gift because faith itself is a gift. And all of your good works that you will do throughout all of your life are a gift. All flowing from one solid foundation, the immeasurable riches of God's grace. You are his workmanship. You see, people who understand this, we can look at two individuals, one who understands it and the other one who doesn't. The one who understands it says this, they see the work that needs to be done in the world and they say, I need to do that. I need to evangelize. I need to go tell my friends about Christ. And they do it. And God honors that. And people come to Christ. And they look back and they say, look at what God has done. Someone who doesn't understand it goes through the same motions. And then they look back and they say, look at all I've done. And that's the difference. the glory of God, but we are his workmanship. Here's our takeaway for today. Our assurance in this life is the goodness of God who is rich in grace. That's where we get all of our assurance in this life. Our hope one day is to be made perfect, is to be conformed to the image of Christ, and what we do now as people who know we are not perfect now, who know we are far from perfect, is we let rest solely on the foundation of God's grace that he will one day make it so. The Reformation that we celebrate tomorrow, sparked by Martin Luther, was ultimately a recovery of the primacy of the grace of God. Reformers for hundreds of years after the Reformation were persecuted. Many were killed. They were able to endure that persecution because their foundation was not swayed by the powers of this world. They could stand before kings. They could stand before courts. 
and they could take their stands on the grace of God because they knew as impressive as the structures of this world can be, they don't hold a candle. They are accounted as nothing compared to the power and the riches and the grace of the God that we worship. So next tomorrow as you're celebrating Halloween, or maybe next year as you're picking out costumes, maybe next year you'll, you'll look for a costume of Martin Luther. I can teach you how to shave your head to look like a monk. But remember that maybe tomorrow as you enjoy your day. Let's pray.